Homestyle Green, episode number 35. Why can't you rely on the building code? G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. I'm your host, Matthew Cutler-Welsh. I'm a sustainable housing expert and I am interested in helping you to create homes that are good for people and good for the planet. And it's been a very busy week. I'm a day late, so apologies for that. Uh, had a great, um, we had a great May. It was really cool to see the numbers creep up and some really good discussions happening, particularly around Passive House. So thank you all for uh, your support and for downloading, listening, and also for getting involved. We've had some good comments on the Facebook page and some great comments. Uh, thank you particularly to... Those who have left some comments in the um, uh, in the blog, and uh, it's great to to have some conversations going on there, and some questions being asked, and a bit of debate. It's always good to happen as well. So, um, thank you for everyone for that. Thanks also goes to uh, Jake's. Know who you are. Uh, I've uh, got a re- review, another review in iTunes. Um, he says, done a great job here, Matt, informative of the New Zealand Green building scene. Keep up the good work. And would love to get your comments and maybe even a, a rating. If you do leave a rating on iTunes, I'll be sure to read it out uh, on the show. Um, that does help increase our audience and get some more awareness of green issues, Better building, better design, all those, all that good stuff helps get the message out there, helps grow our audience and our community. Speaking of our community, we've had also a very good response to extra little feature of signing up to the mailing list. And I made comments last week, I really don't want that to be something where I bombard people with lots of information and, and you know, people don't need more emails. But what I want to do is connect with people out there find out what's going on, find out what the issues are at the moment. And having a an email list is one way that I can do that and ensure that I know who you are and what is going on for you and what you'd like to know more about. So if you do, if you haven't signed up already, then head on over to homestylegreen.com and you can sign up on the page or you can contact me, comments at homestylegreen.com and I'll be sure to get back to you. Just come back today from a very interesting workshop with a bunch of people from across the housing industry. And the topic of conversation was warrant of fitness for rental properties. I'd be very interested in your thoughts on whether that is something that's appropriate for New Zealand to have a rental warrant of fitness or something similar given that nothing is in place at the moment. And I don't know if many people know about this, but we are mostly, taxpayers this is, subsidising, well, we we contribute to an accommodation um, supplement for a lot of people who are in the unfortunate position where they are not able to afford the uh, rent or housing. And at the moment, that uh, people can apply for an accommodation um, supplement uh, and that is indeed paid to quite a few people who are living in in private rentals or Housing New Zealand 
Um, I'm not sure of it, all the details. But anyway, suffice to say, there's no mechanism for ensuring the quality of any houses, let alone the people that are receiving that accommodation supplement. So be interested to know people's thoughts on that and whether you think time is nigh for having something in place to ensure the quality of rental houses specifically, um, but probably all houses as well. And that leads me into the topic that I just wanted to discuss today, which was around quality and the why I think that you can't rely on the building code. So before we get stuck into why I think we can't, that you shouldn't rely on the building code, have a little bit of, we should do a little bit of background on what the building code is and what it, um, how it works. The building code is essentially a clause, or it's actually a schedule, the first schedule of the Building Act, and that's the Building Act 2004 is the latest version of that. So the building code is kind of where the rubber hits the road in terms of the Act. The Act is the is the, the, the main mechanism for central government, but the code uh, has all the details of the rules and regulations of what can and can't be done, and the code is the bit that's implemented on the ground usually by your local council. So when you want to do some building work, you or your builder submit a building consent and that consent is um, judged against the building code. Now our building code is what is called a performance-based code. Now don't let that word performance in there fool you because what that's saying is that it's a non-prescriptive code in that it doesn't set out that this is how a wall, for example, must be constructed in a house in New Zealand, or this is how you must make a, a roof, or how you must make a floor slab. What it does do is say any roof or floor or wall or system in the house must be built in such a way that it achieves certain performance criteria. So that's what it means by performance-based code. And there are some acceptable solutions or, or, or standard um, ways of doing things. So there are certain ways that you can comply with that that don't have to be tested. But if you want to do something a little bit different, a little bit um, out of the ordinary, non-standard, then you have to go away and do a bunch of calculations and basically prove that that system is going to perform to a certain standard. Now, the reality of the building code is a, is a little bit different from that in my humble opinion and bear in mind this is my personal opinion largely uh, not those of any past present or future employer so this is my my thinking and my observations from the industry needless to say I, I i have had this conversation with quite a few people who have been around in the building scene for a while and there's not too much debate in the, certainly the circles that I tend to associate with. So in my and my expert area of expertise is mostly confined, I must admit, to one of the clauses, clause H1. So there's a whole bunch of clauses within the code and they all relate to different parts of the building code. And they, they cover things, everything from structure, internal moisture, natural light, artificial light, sound insulation. And one of those areas happens to be energy efficiency. And the, the clause that deals with that energy efficiency is called Clause H1. A very unsexy name, but we in the, in the industry typically just refer it to as H1. 
And what most buildings do or what most builders do is um, aspire, I guess is the word, to H1 compliance. So therein lies what I think is the biggest problem with our building code. And that is that the industry sees H1 as a target. And it's not a target. It is really a bare minimum. It is a very bare minimum, actually. And I'm going to put up in the some of the show notes of, of what the minimum require what those minimum requirements are. But essentially that they're not very high and um, they can easily be uh, achieved and in fact they can easily be superseded and should be superseded. And that is, I guess, the whole point of this episode is that you should not um, you should not settle for the building code. Now, for a step, for most houses that they're, they're what they we call a non-solid construction. That's so that's a basically a timber framed house. And there's a table in the standard for compliance with H1. And to achieve that, all you need to do if you're in climate zone one, which is Auckland, would be in your roof an R value of 2.9, in your walls an R value of 1.9, and your floor to have an R value of 1.3. If you're in the climate zone three, which is all of the South Island, then it's a little bit more. You are required to have R3.3 in the roof, uh, R2 in the walls, a little bit higher there, and the floor is the same at R1.3. So if you go into an average house in a brand new subdivision, what do you think you're likely to find? Well, I can tell you, in a lot of cases, you're likely to find exactly those minimum R values. If you're in the South Island, you might find maybe a little bit higher, maybe R3.6. That's 0.3 higher in the roof than the required R3.3. You're probably only going to find the bare minimum R2 in the walls. And your the floor is a bit more interesting because it because of the way it's calculated. But generally, the challenge is to get, and it's seen by a lot of housing companies, to get that floor so it's compliant. So basically, so it gets over that R one point three um, requirement, and then the it's a done deal. So my argument is that that is completely the wrong mentality around using the code and using the tool, the other tools that we have available, namely thermal modeling tools, to really get a much better home. Because here's the thing, it's not that hard to get a home with much higher R values in the walls uh, and ceiling and, and under the floor. If we take the walls though, for example, all of the common suppliers say, let's look at Mammoth, um, which is a polyester insulation, they have a product which is rated to R2.5, I think. Yep, 2.5 in the walls, and that will fit in a standard 90 millimeter frame. Terralana, they do a, a wool product. They have a, uh, a wall bat that goes to R2.2. So that's higher than the required 1.9 or even the, the, uh, for the North Island and R2 for all of the South Island. Very easy there to achieve uh, above code. 
and that's just with 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 a ninety mil frame. If you go to a uh, one forty mil frame, that allows you to put in even more insulation into that wall because you can have a, a thicker cavity, and so you can get a much much higher uh, or a, a thicker amount of insulation there with a higher R value. Um, Pink Bats Ultra, they go up to two point eight, and that's again that's just a, at a ninety mil frame. So the the stuff's out there, the products are available. A builder's probably not going to do that unless you ask for it because they're more expensive. But the, the here's the thing. When you close in a floor or a wall or even in some cases a roof, it's, it's, uh, it's done. The job's done. That's not going to ever happen again in most cases. You're not going to pull the lining off a brand new house five years, ten years down the track unless you've got some big issues. You're certainly not going to rip up the concrete slab. So why wouldn't you increase the level of insulation when you can? And coming back to the point of this episode, this whole episode is the code doesn't require you to do that, but I'm suggesting that you definitely want to increase the value of those, uh, the insulation you're putting into the house and to not rely on the fact that the code and the structures around compliance with the code are, are going to take care of that because they're simply not. You can do much better than that, and you should not settle for just a code compliance sort of approach from your designer. The second issue, issue which I've alluded to, is the fact that within the code there are only three climate zones defined for New Zealand. And one of the starkest areas where that becomes interesting, I think, is in the South Island, because essentially that means that because the South Island, all of the South Islanders is climate zone three, that means that a house that is designed, for example, for Nelson, is compliant in Invercargill, it's compliant in Dunedin, it's compliant in Queenstown. And clearly those places have quite different climates and quite different um, temperatures, winter wintertime temperatures and also summertime temperatures as well. So I think that if a if you're relying on a system where th- that is the case, where those two houses are compliant in those areas, then you're really not getting a house that is designed well for the local conditions. So that's the second issue is that um, those climate zones are quite broad. Then finally, well not finally, there's probably other issues as well, but these are the three main ones that that I I think you need to be aware of. The third issue is around quality control because even if you design a house to an okay standard, then who's to say that that is actually going to be built. Now, surely you would think that is the place of building inspectors because that's what happens when a building gets uh, constructed. At various times during the building process, a, a building inspector will come out, usually from the local authority, the building, uh, the, the local council will come out and check certain things in the house. From experience, that tends to be relating to the structure of the house and these are all things that are covered in those certain clauses and there are certain checkpoints where they have to come out and have a look at things so before the the concrete gets poured for example they have to come and check but really one of the one of the primary things they're looking at there is the the mesh that's in there and and the structure of the and and the structural integrity of the uh the concrete slab 
they're not necessarily going to check the insulation that goes un, and, and how well that's been put in place before the concrete gets poured on top of it. Same thing with the framing. They're probably more concerned about things that uh, they're going to be potentially liable for, like structural integrity, um, water ingress, weather tightness, those sorts of issues. They're not necessarily going to be checking in finite detail whether the insulation is installed well, whether it's not crushed, whether it's not hasn't got pieces missing, whether it's got gaps and tucks and folds, or whether the insulation's a bit damp or, or, or just completely missing in some places. Now, these are things that ideally should be checked, but we know from experience that they're not. And the reason we know this is because ICA commissioned a study in around 2010 and 58 houses from across the country were assessed. This was on the back of quite a comprehensive auditing process that ICA had in place for the Walmart New Zealand program where uh, insulation was retrofitted into existing houses. And ICA, uh, through the service providers, got very, very good at checking the quality of insulation retrofits. So then they said, well, this is all well and good, and we've got the system pretty nailed. And having been in that industry myself, I know that the pressure was was on, and rightly so. They um, did a very, very good job of checking the quality and upping the game of insulation installers in that retrofit market. But there's a dichotomy out there right now because... I've been into quite a few brand new homes in brand new subdivisions and most of those houses would fail uh, ICA warm-up New Zealand audit. And they would fail on various things like insulation touching the um, roofing material, downlights being covered, gaps in the insulation, tucks, folds, uh, areas of... Um, that are just completely missed, and that happens quite commonly around where there's roof windows and there are vertical parts in the the ceiling. All those types of issues can quite often get missed, and they they often won't get necessarily picked up by a building inspector. And we know this coming back to the ECA Commission report from 2010, because. Every single one of those 58 homes that were assessed failed. So not one of those brand new houses passed a insulation audit. And that's pretty scary. So there you go. If you are thinking that the building, the, the, the initial design can be relied on to produce a good product, then I'd suggest we think again about that. But then even if you get to that point, you can't guarantee that that design is going to be implemented and checked by the processes that are already in place around building compliance. So they're the three issues that I see. And very quickly, if we look at, well, what does that all mean for you if you want to ensure that you have a good home? Well, firstly, my recommendations are to find a designer and a team, including your builder, who is willing and able to go well beyond the code. And if you're having to explain things like thermal mass, solar orientation, um, maybe uh, 
increasing the R values in, in the walls and the ceiling. If you're having to explain those things to the designer and why and convince your builder that it's a good idea, then I would suggest it, you should find someone else. Unless they're coming around to the idea and they're willing to, to give it a nudge, then you don't really want to be spending lots of time and energy in the early stages trying to cover off some of those basic issues. Um, if you're getting pushback, for example, on wanting to have 140 mil studs and thicker walls so you can get more insulation in your walls, and uh, um, perhaps a builder might say, well, no, you're a bit silly, really, because no one, no one really does that, then I would suggest you need to stick to your guns and either require that they do that or find a different builder. Um, my second tip is to use Homestar. Uh, use a, use a, find a Homestar assessor on homestar.org.nz and they will be able to provide a design rating for your plan and they can use that design with you to weigh up what your options are and consider the cost benefit of going beyond the code. And I think that should be a useful tool to see what your options are, what the priorities are for your particular house and your particular climate zone and what's going to give you uh, the best bang for your buck. So um, use use a Homestar professional somewhere in that design process. Earlier the better, because that's where it's easiest to affect most change. Then finally, make sure you're there when the insulation goes in. So be there to see it. And def really think of that thermal envelope as a complete wrap around the whole house. It's the same as weather tightness in that any holes or e even small ones can dramatically impact the overall effectiveness. So it's one of those times when you definitely want to be pedantic because like I said, once the lining goes on, concrete's poured and in some cases once the roof goes on or the, the ceiling lining goes on, some of those uh, spaces and cavities won't be accessed again. So you're paying for that stuff and you're probably going to be paying for uh, warming the house and heating it up. So you definitely want to get that right because you're only going to get one, one crack at it. So that's probably uh, enough from me for this week. That's all I really wanted to say. It's something that I quite often think about in, out in the industry and it's, it's one of my key messages, I think, to people who are in the market for a house is to not settle for code in the first place. And when you do design a house that is, is above the building code, particularly around H1, make sure that the processes are in place to ensure the quality on the ground and that those systems actually get done um, properly and, and to, a uh, to a high, uh, high level um, a high level of quality. Must be getting late. Time for me to turn off and, uh, and pop this up into iTunes. Thank you very much for, for listening in. Really appreciate that. Do head on over. I'd love to get your comments and feedback and rating in iTunes. And um, leave a question either on Facebook or you can email me, comments at homestylegreen.com. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you again next week.